0: Undergo Go, Sprint Lectures on African Mobilities, a podcast by Africa Multiple.
1: Now an introduction of our speaker for today. Uh, professor Pavati Raghuram is a professor of geography and migration research and policy at the Open University in the UK. Her scholarly interests fall under the intersections of globalization, migration and mobility, Gender, class, and race politics, as well as postcolonial theory. Broadly, her research interrogates the implications of mobility for class and race politics and the ways that postcolonial theory can uh, offer roots for really understanding and also contesting some of these politics. Uh, Professor Pavati has primarily worked on the tech industry in India and the UK but as she rightly pointed to us a few minutes ago, she's also currently involved in a few projects on migration within Africa. She has published extensively on re migration of skilled migrants, care workers, but also on international students in the North. Uh, for our talk today, she will be sharing with us a recently published paper in the Journal of Immigrants and Refugee Studies, titled, Democratizing, Stretching, Entangling, Transversing, All Moves for Reshaping Migration Categories. So we are very, very delighted to have Professor Pavati Raghuram with us, and Professor, the floor is yours. So the paper
0: really comes out of a whole issues around categorization that have uh, sort of befuddled me ever since I came. To the UK, uh, thirty odd years ago. So, in the in India, I did um, I did uh, urban geography. So when I came here as a very young mother I, to the UK, I thought, "Aha, let me do urban geography." Then I, I was know. told, "No, no, no, you have to do development studies." And I had never done development studies in my life. I had done economic geography, which is not the same thing at all for us because it was about uh, and But here, what was economics in, in India was development here. So clearly where I started from and, and the fact that I, well, how I looked mattered in how I got categorized and how my research subsequently got categorized. So I could never do economic geography, I could only ever do development studies. And from there I developed, and then I applied for this job called Third World Studies. It was a two day interview and I went with one day's worth of clothes. And I thought, oh, I'm never going to get this. I didn't know clue what Third World Studies was because I mean, I kind of knew enough about Third Worldism because of the work, uh, because of, you know the kind of non-aligned movement, but not beyond that. Never had this external outward looking perspective on what a Third World looks like. And what should be taught within it. Um, And uh, oddly enough, I ended up getting that job and having to teach third world studies. And I was thinking, I'm like like a few minutes ahead of my students, if that. Um, But so there was something fundamental here about how I was categorized, how disciplines were categorized, how objects and people and their mobilities were categorized. And I felt like I was caught in the middle of that. And to me, therefore, the whole question of categorization has always been something I've struggled with as a result, but also recognize the power of some of these categories and how we think about this. And so this paper really came out of that. And then I, um, out of that um, sentiment, an ongoing long-term sentiment, and then I was invited to do a plenary for the IMISCO conference, which which is the organization of migration research centers in Europe. Uh, for their spring conference, and um, so which was on migration categories. So I, you know, kind of helped me to focus on what it is that I've been struggling with a bit. This paper comes partly, you know, as developed in relation to that. So what am I arguing in this paper? I guess what I'm saying is, um, I start with the, with why does all this matter in the context of migration? Because, It's one thing to talk about development studies. It's another thing to talk about migration. Not that both are not problematic, but each is differently problematic and differently situated as problematic. In the European context, at any rate, uh, migration is extremely uh, uh, polarized um, in terms of how it collects together audiences, policies, researchers, Slightly less so, researchers, but definitely within in terms of audiences and politics. So it is politicized uh, very strongly in bipolar ways, with uh, people generally tending to think of themselves either for migration or against migration in some forms or ways. And there are some little bits of things in between. And I was trying to think through actually what are the inheritances that for politics and conflict, right? And one of the key inheritances of that is that is that it is the basis of politics and conflict. It's a basis of so much of elections. So at the Open University where we produce courses which last over 10 years, and I did a piece on migration for, uh, for a level one module. And they said, "Oh, you know, one of the persons said actually, migration is kind of topical now, but in ten years' time, it might not be so, you know, interesting or topical. People might not be worried about it." And the rest of the course team turned around and said, "It will. It will still be extremely political." So, in a sense, one of the key things for me is how do you de- How do you think of a category, in the context of that categorization, mattering, mattering hugely, dividing families dividing, you know, groups, and then how do you step out outside of that bipolar politics that is offered to you, and which is almost seems to be something you inherit and defines you. And so how can you use categorization to think beyond that polarization in some form or way? And I should also say, uh, this is part of a group of people who are working in this kind of a model, uh, who are thinking beyond the kind of focus on migrants as the primary object of mobility, which has to be contained and through whose bodies other forms of uh, mobilities travel or, or whose, around which infrastructures uh, cohere. So what we want to do is to think beyond that, to think about all the other infrastructures of thought and uh, Id- uh, of ideas, of objects and their mobilities and how they relate to, you know, this really problematized migrant category mobility. So that's where this paper comes from and what that's the rationale of the paper, right? So what was I writing in this? The first thing I guess is the architecture of contemporary migration categories. The who, the why, the how, the where and the when and why these matter. So who clearly matters and it is often seen as one of the really Important epistemic divides. So, one of the things that people say is, aha, this is an ethic perspective because it's made by policymakers, but then this is an emic perspective because this is actually migrants' own categorization, with people having different aligning themselves differently on whether they think one is superior to the other and making claims about the authenticity of different of these, of who categorizes. Yeah. The second is, of course, why people categorize and um, and is closely related with that, is for instance, categorization as claim-making or categorization as a practice, which is, uh, uh, no, categorization as something which um, uh, that officials do, right? As opposed to uh, people's own categorizations as a form of claim-making. So in this, part of the paper, one of the things that I say is that actually, in, if for everybody, categorization is a form of practice. And uh, the, when somebody's standing there day after day and then, you know, going into work and stamping people as such and such compared to such and such, they're categorizing, but that's a set of practices which also seem to be, need to be seen as, as living in a world of practices, of including that of claim making. Yeah. So uh, the third question is, how do people categorize? So, uh, of course, uh, categorize the, um, the, the, how of categorization is, um, is based around uh, the powers to categorize and the powers of the categories themselves. So, and there are differences between these. These power differentials arise through the how of categorization, for instance, administrative or legal categories may be seen as derived from law, but common sense categories are derived from these as well as through media and public discourses, contemporary and historical. Moreover, the ways in which categorization is operationalized through everyday talk rather than through juridical processes is another important vector of differentiation. So, the power of these categories is not just derived from association or used by policy makers, but but also a power over groups and and a power through everyday circulations amongst communities and populations, often reverberating, for instance, through their use in the social media and wider media, right? That is the power through reach. and then there's the where and the when of the categorization the power of particular sites and migration category making is really important so when you walk up to an immigration counter how many of us who have got who do not have blue eu passports or red british pass i mean red eu, uh, EU passports or you know blue american passports, so many of us feel anxious right we go through and we think and i remember in the uh, uh, so when my family come from india now i have a British EU passport. But on the other hand, when they come from India, the first thing they tell you when they reach, yes, you know, it was okay at the immigration counter. So, you know, there is always that anxiety, the where of when and and the when of categorization. So when a landlord is required to check and ensure that they're not letting a house to an irregular migrant, or when the public are encouraged to report those with irregular statuses, they too are required to categorize and are invested in both the roles and the responsibilities of the state and its authority to categorize. So in effect, some of the changes, at least in the UK, through what uh, Mazadra Nielsen called the multiplication of borders has been precisely in redistributing um, who is allowed to categorize, when they're allowed to categorize and where they're allowed to categorize. So everybody has the power to categorize. Many, many people are given the power to categorize because of the real um, um, anxieties around migration and the very bipolar politics within which that occurs currently. So the paper then goes on to think through the limitations of categories. So although the who, why, how, where and when of categories are useful, in practice they usually operate together. Categories can therefore be seen to limit thinking to box in rather than provide us with the ability to see the connections and the relationships between different types of categories. And I'm not the first one to say this, there's a whole lot of people who are saying this, yeah? So they critique, for instance, the epistemological tenets of categorization, which is usually about each category needing to be distinctive and mutually exclusive. So people are not allowed to be border crossing and um, and then the category, so, so categories have been critiqued because they lack internal consistency or the logic of homogeneity. And they're empirically difficult to pin down, and then they have boundary-crossing qualities. Together, these point to the lack of mutual exclusivity, i.e. if you belong in one ca- category, then you can't be in another. However, there's also other qualities of categories that make it, you know, that of uh, migration categories that make it really problematic, for instance, its spatiotemporality, the locations, the statutory nature, and the casual, casual micro, you know, categories. Importantly, these also cross-cut each other. Okay, so I, um, the, I want to add to these this sort of a discussion by pointing to a few other things that I think are really important. One of them is that migration categories are often composite, right? Uh, not only in in uh, how they're used, but also in intention. And a typical example of this is the EU blue uh, card, you know, which uses age, employability, or employment, sector of employment, earning potential. All of these things can be put together in some uh, more or less coherent ways in order to think of what the category should include. So they're often composite. Second is that a group of categories is often also juxtaposed or collapsed into another. So, for instance you have a group of migration categories and then you have a group of value categories like for instance these are good categories these are bad categories right these are good people these are bad people and that's very common when in highly politicized um, uh, conversations and then there's differentiations of valuations are dependent on categorization but on different types of categorization so for instance sometimes you may be using race sometimes you may be using class Uh, And all these are made possible because categories are ultimately combined. And then thirdly, classification is very slippery. So it changes over time. And importantly, people change how they use categories. So for instance, you might think you're something now, but five years from now, you find actually, you were never that category because they've changed the rules. And they don't bother to tell you and even if they tell you obviously if not everybody understands it and then therefore this can be used to deport and the best example of this in the UK context is the Windrush yeah and I won't go into that so I in the in the rest of the paper what I do is to argue that all of these things have consequences right um and the lack of empirical specificity, the fact that these are composite, they, they don't have, um, that they are shifting over time and they're slippery. And there are also practices which, which, you know, which slip and slide and which are so dependent on the who, how, where, why, and when, then all means that, but uh, uh, are useful as analytical devices, but these are, it's really important to think about why are we bothering with all of this, yeah? And that's because categorization has consequences some people get evicted some people use the categories in order to make claims some others use it to uh, to make visibilize a problem which is often invisibilized and, and so actually paying attention to categorization as a process is part of a politics and ethics of, uh, of building towards the politics and the ethics of migration, which is a kind of a body of work, which I've been you know, thinking through over time. So my four thesis for rearticulating migration categories. The first one is to learn beyond, uh, uh, learning from beyond migration studies. So the first one is democratizing categories, right? Um, uh, so obviously in the STS literature, there's a lot of stuff about how you need to open up categories to humans and non-humans alike. But of course, there's also been a critique about who's the human in, involved in this. Uh, in these, in this kind of opening up, and you know, how do we spend more time thinking about those different types of humans um, in in migration studies too? There has been a desire to democratize, the desire to reduce the authority of experts um, uh, in categorization, and it's been a really important objective. But uh, uh, Actually, it only goes so far. For instance, uh, what it doesn't recognize is that um, the vectors uh, can be so in, some vectors can be so important for some groups and not for others. For instance, one migrant may consider mobility journeys as central, another might think that the nature of the work uh, that they are being offered at the end of it is what is important how it progresses their career is paramount. Somebody else might think it's actually it's the onward trajectory that a mobility produces that is important. So in effect, you're having process-based categories as, if, as a, a, with a temporalities involved in this, right? So you have people who are talking about different levels and scopes of anticipation all being categorized together. So paying attention to these categories involves not just democratizing, but also thinking of migrant subalternity. It involves recognizing the colonizing gaze through which migration categories are usually uh, produced, and thinking about the who of migration most seriously. Secondly, I think it's stretching categories across place and time, because categories are ultimately spatio-temporal configurations. They have a where and a when, they're discursive outcomes of cultural tropes and social formations, but also administrative outcomes of very particular here and now. So these migration terminologies and categories are often universalized, even though they often arise from the um, a particular histories of the management of global south to north migration. So one of the things I always ask myself is, what would this migration category look like if you looked at it from the perspective of a of a global south person. So, you know, as a student applying for a visa, standing at the counter at the British um, uh, High Commission in Delhi, what you'll be thinking is are my papers around scholarship? What's the fee flows that I have to show? What is the, um, you know, which is the kind of institution which is, have they got greater clout or do some institutions get less? Uh, are are people, students applying to less some institution, are they less likely to get through? So these are the things that appear as important categorizations when you're standing in that line, right? They, um, so thinking through that lens of the actual person standing in that line in the Global South, what is what are they thinking of the categories? Might be a really important political exercise, not just an intellectual exercise. Um, and this this kind of thinking about thinking across borders and to thinking about how these things are colonial inheritance is becoming more and more important for me, particularly in the light of currently in the Black Lives movement. So last week I was giving a talk on, uh, you know, what is the challenge for thinking about transnationalism in uh, going forwards, And that's where I, you know, my heads are thinking about this. Um, at the heterogeneous temporalities that are kind of jostling with each other and thinking about whose categories then matter. And how we work towards migration justice through our categorization. Um, but the spatialities of migration categories are not only situated like in the Global South, but they also exist within a world of categorization. They're translated and transported especially in the context of harmonizing policy. So it's really important to think that actually even the situatedness of a migration category can be quite variable. Um, Thirdly, and I'll I'll finish in a couple of minutes, is that categorization exists in a world beyond migration categories. So for instance, if you think about what is it that gender categories are doing, When is it that people are calling up monoglossic stable gender... monoclassic gender stability, for instance, and masking internal diversity and consistency as a claim, right? For instance, so when is it that these... uh, that that we should be working with, for instance, what is the the field of gender studies doing around gender theorization? And then thinking how does that relation relate to migrant categorization? And I think this is really important because these questions mean that we are not just stepping out of disciplinarity or even transdisciplinarity, but we're becoming anti-disciplinary. Right. Um, And, um, and I can spend a bit more time on that later, but, um, uh, but I think it is the political point about this is that in move in. Um, Movement politics, for instance, people can claim a singular category and actually evicting other people from those political categories is the political point, right? So sometimes you might want this kind of monoglossic stability of a category. And finally, uh, the final point is about transversing categories. Changing the point of interrogation is crucial. So starting with the issue of migration arguably leads to the inevitability uh, inevitability of migration categories. But if you look beyond this, so for instance, if you look at what is the category that is actually relevant in this context, that category may not be, look anything like the category for instance, and I'm here in the context of student migrants, for instance, uh, you think, yeah, this is all about student migrants and there are millions of papers written about where do students go, why do they decide to go there and so on and so forth. Actually speaking, the point of it is that for me is that Uh, when you have the Shanghai um, university rankings, part of the things they look at is how international are you? So actually it's universities which are invested in the student mobility and academic staff mobility. So if you reposition this within the category of who is invested in these categories, it's not migrant. The migrant is therefore playing along to the branding exercises which are necessary to reproduce the power of institutions with a with a wider reach, right? So for whom has it mattered these categories? So I want to end by saying, you know, by throwing open some provocations about what this means for the future. For me, it's about what do ca- those categories look like in other contexts? What difference does it make to think about categories as lived? How do we take on the categorization and categories which are meaningful to those whom we study? Right, and how have existing foci of category led you down paths, which actually take away from the power of other categories, which actually are far more dependent on these um, uh, on mobilities, right? And I think these are really important because addressing contemporary politics requires looking at the methods of the contemporary moment, but also to think about the good work that might be do- categories may be doing and where it is not doing good work. Both are required if we have to transact between the generality of categories and the singularity of justice. And that's what's required for the politics of the present.
1: Thank you so much for that fascinating talk. Um, I would actually introduce myself now because I realized I didn't do it at the beginning. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher in the mobilities research section of the cluster and my research broadly looks at the mobilities of electronic waste. So uh, my first question actually. One of the moves that you suggest for reshaping migration category is democratizing it in the sense of making room for categories that are amenable to uh, non humans, but also multi species relations. And given the times that we are, with the COVID uh, pandemic and also the coronavirus itself. And it's been a, a non-human actor, so to speak, and how it's intersecting with uh, our ability to migrate and uh, really move in, 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 in interesting way. I was wondering if you could speak more about what that might look like, what categories, for instance, might be possible for differently positioned people when we look at uh, democratizing uh, categories in general by accounting for uh, non-human but also multi-species relations? What might that look like?
0: So I'd like to start by saying that when I've, you know, when thinking about something like the crisis, um, what I find really useful following on from the work of people like, you know, who worked on policing the crisis and thinking about, uh, and a conversation actually between Stuart Hall and Doreen Massey on crisis. What's really important about thinking about the crisis is, is uh, not to think, is to think about it a as a condensation of existing infrastructures and their failures. And it has the power to unfold things that were pre- probably present in the past right? What Raymond Williams calls the residual categories, right? So one of the things that any moment uh, offers is the ability to think through that residual, Uh, but also to think through the emergent, right? And not just the hegemonic. So that's the first methodological thing, is that the crisis is never a, a moment, it's not a period, it is an insight or an analytical take into what came before and what is to follow. And an opportunity to to organize oneself politically around this, so so that's the f- first thing t- you know, which is my broader perspective around thinking through a crisis. The second thing is I don't really work on multispecies, um, uh, uh, so I wouldn't want to go down that path at this point. What I have been thinking about and is is much more about the relationship between that and actually the movement of other objects, in particular financial flows. For me, that's been very important looking at the African case, actually, because um, those kinds of mobilities and the entanglements of the multiple mobilities have become so central in, and are rarely talked about. And the fact that actually there's a whole financial element to this migration business, right? So when students move, and in my case, I think here at the moment about students, but you can apply this to anywhere else. What we used to find is, okay, you know, oil prices drop, right? The, the Nigerian students, um, the value of the Naira has dropped dramatically, right? Then the person who is well-to-do has the ability to show a certain amount of money in the back and can therefore move money across into another account in another country. But not everybody can because you need to have a minimum amount in order to be a avail of international transfers, right? You look at the Namibian case and for instance, um, the student mobility there to South Africa is, is relatively seamless because actually they, they, for historical reasons, have worked in the same currency um, a, a common monetary area, right? Um, whereas you look at Zimbabwe and that's a totally different relationship you know, with, with the question of bonds, with how the currency dropped, the fact that actually even acquiring currency is therefore difficult. And then, uh, and I tried talking about this in Singapore, which is highly technical, right? And I, uh, I remember I, there was some Chinese, uh, Chinese um, uh, or peop- people from China in the audience who had already struggled with the backwardness of Singapore that actually you had to pay when you went to the bill because they said, wow, you know, in China, it's all automatic facial recognition. And so they just, you know, take the money off you. And then what was interesting is, so you have all these kinds of other forms of mobilities, which are enabled and disabled, whereas in the Zimbabwean case, literally, they're taking bags of money out and walking across the border and and distributing it and paying it up as fees in order to acquire a place abroad. So, while not of species, what I'm conscious of, of is the complete entanglements of the infra of multiple infrastructures, right? The financial infrastructures, the mobility infrastructures, um, and the oil infrastructures. In the case of Nigeria, for instance, right? So you're talking about multiple markets, and and all of these interrelate in the context of actually the futures market because um, the uh, because money itself travels in its own circulation. So for instance, in the South African case, it's one of the most highly traded currencies in the world. So it it is highly volatile. So today the Nigerian uh, money may be enough and tomorrow it won't, right? Mm -hmm. So it is in that context and all of these variations came to a head in something like a crisis, right? Mm -hmm. But what the crisis does, because what we found when is that um, it mobilized some and uh, de- uh, immobilized others. And this was never straightforward because it was not entirely class dependent. For some people, it was dependent on a multiplicity of factors which came together. So there's, um, it is, uh, and it's those kinds of entanglements, the unexpectedness of it, but also the ability to do to, uh, In the COVID case, one of the things we found is that the ability to be able to delay a decision was very variable, right? Some people could delay it and others couldn't. And I think there's something really about the temporalities of how mobility and immobility get played out in these entanglements between things, right? And people that uh, that, uh, really led to mobilizing some, yeah. It, it had very differential effect, Thank no answer, sorry. Thank
1: you, Thank you. Uh, we have another question uh, from Professor Andre Behrens and she her question is on the part to categorize. So people constantly categorize or in other words, we are never outside of categories. How do you distinguish between migrant categories and other forms of belonging?
0: So for me, one of the things is that any act of categorization is only a a product of um, it it is no, most of the time, not always, it is a part of the production of one's own subjectivities. So it's done in relation to others, depending on the audience, that audience might be a form, right, that you have to fill, or it might be a person that you align with. Right, and for me, one of the crucial things has been, and again, this is really interesting in the African case, is uh, who is who is African, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's been uh, a really a political question um, in 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 different ways across my two or three projects, right? So, in I've been working with an African dancer who's um, who's Jamaican and but British born. And uh, or British brought up, and uh, strongly religious, believes his spirit will go back to Africa after he dies because that's what happens to slave spirits. And he comes from a you know obviously from the history of slavery, um, uh, where and and yes, the AU says the sixth arm of the AU is the um, is that it's diaspora. So, but equally. There are so many divisions within Africa as well, as there are in any other place, right? So you will see the kind of, so not any more or less than on any other place, which is really important to say, but um, how our Nigerians are held. For instance, one of the things we've really struggled with in, a proje- in one of our projects is the extent to which there's a kind of xenophobia around uh, Nigerians. So when migrants categorize themselves, they are categorizing in context of all these kinds of political movements which are shifting. So uh, it's not to answer that question but to say that what one belongs to and who, who uh, when matters probably in thinking about this relationship between migrant categorizations and belonging. So yeah. In the paper you
1: talk about how categories can be generated both by migrant activists but also policy in the context of uh, migrants and activists, could you elaborate a bit further how powerful and organized a subaltern uh, appropriation of categories might look like and how they might change migration policies so in a way the interplay between these different
0: position people migrant activists, but also policymakers. I'm not a migrant activist, so I would always want to say that first, that I have uh, been broadly working in the sort of conceptual field. So uh, whenever I speak, I should be humble about thinking that I'm speaking off other people's research on this area and to recognize that uh, there are many in this room who are better uh, positioned to speak on this. So with that humility, I would like to say that um, I would like to just offer some thoughts since I was asked it. Um, I think claim making is something we all do, but at the same time, there is something also about uh, about bringing together multiple claimants, right? And that's where activism activism really works, uh, where because. Uh, Uh, because it is through the uh, amalgamation of of multiple people and through, you know, that one gets that traction in public, in the media. My worry with all of this at the moment is that I have, in the last few years, all I have seen is growing anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that has been, uh, so migrant activism has, not fundamentally made a a difference to that as yet uh, in my understanding of it, but I'm sure there are people who who would know more about this in the room and I'd love to hear from them.
1: So we have another question from Franca, how categorizations affect North-South migration, especially in contexts where multiculturalism is becoming extinct, so to speak
0: yeah there are two parts to that actually one of them is the extent to which south north migration gets problematized itself in that um, it becomes uh, it becomes and it again gets entangled with you know other cognate categorizations like for instance migration and development right how do you how would the world look if you thought actually that all this money that students are paying to the global north actually helps to develop the global north and that this is uh, negative remittances that the students are paying, that the Global South faces, and that the Global North is actually the beneficiary from student fees, right? You have then upturned your South-North migration story by actually looking precisely through this kind of not species species association, but by looking at association between fee flows and uh, people flows. So I think there's, that's why it's so political to think about who benefits, right? And to not see South-North migration as well as Southern beneficiaries. Um, to me, that's also part of the whole thing about thinking about multiculturalism because there was a view of multiculturalism as adding value. There's a really great piece by Adorno. It's a short piece where he talks about the importance. Um, this is in the context of a whole lot of um, Jews moving from Europe into, um, into the US and they were told that, uh, you know, um, they were variously accommodated into the academy and then, you know, not always very well because, you know, anti-Semitism is a global phenomenon. But, and then where they were seen, they were told actually it's good that you were contributing something to us. And he argues we don't contribute Right, we are constitutive of it. There is no pre-existing knowledge without us, and I think that's one of the fundamental challenges that multiculturalism hasn't taken on board. That actually, where is the one culture to begin with, and how is it that you know uh, 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 is the Canadian culture culture already uh, uh, you know inherently multicultural? Not multicultural the way they look at it, yeah. Where there is one culture followed by another culture, but actually you're not contributing to it; you're constitutive of it. It doesn't exist outside of this, of this, um, of this kind of amalgam, mm-hmm. right? And it has been produced, and, and I think that's one of the really important contributions that has, you know, needs to be picked up from post-colonial theory. It was one of its strongest contributions to this form of thinking, which I think we sometimes have lost. So upturning things and then also thinking, what is it the object itself, you know, is there a purity to the object?
1: Thank you. And I think this actually provide quite a, a natural segue into a question from Paddy. What possibilities categories open up for? So in a way, can we interrogate the architecture of categorization itself and what possibilities does that offer?
0: Oh, absolutely. I think the whole paper is about interrogating the architecture of categorization and to say that actually that's one of the key things that we must do, but also that this is a political act because Mm -hmm. it's always got to align with the politics of the present, right? What is it that we are doing this analytical work for? And Mm -hmm. I feel that uh, increasingly frustrated at the very mute uh, politics and ethics discussion in 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 some of these broader debates so uh, now recently somebody told me every paper of yours is a manifesto i said yeah it probably is now <laughs> can't be bothered otherwise
1: uh, so we have another question from uli and she is interested in the tensions of democratizing categories and how di- might relate to policing of categories in itself in terms of authority. So an example that she's thinking of is how landlords are having to check uh, categories and recategorizing as a result of that. So the question in itself is, how might we also have to rethink authority and policing of category in terms of democratizing?
0: No, great point, actually, and really something I'll take away, because I think you're absolutely right. In some ways, I did not want to use the word decolonization, because I think uh, I've, you know, apart from having a very large £2 million project on decolonization, for the rest of my life, I don't do decolonization. I think it's something that, you know, uh, um, Indigenous people do. And so, so I, yeah, I lead on it, but I, again, I don't do the decolonization. But I think there's something about um, about democratization as a, as an outcome and democratization as a process, right? So handing authority to everybody to, to categorize is one thing, but are the outcomes democratic, right? Do they enable uh, uh, a better redistribution of power? And that's not necessarily so in the landlord case, right? Um, it, it, it It accrues and it elides the power of the state with that of people. Is that a democratization? I'm not sure, right? Mm -hmm. So it it appears democratization and that's actually one of the biggest uh, magic tricks actually, which has been played by current politicians, right? Which is to say that um, uh, to, uh, I mean, in, in, in so many countries, right, it is the removal of expertise, the belief that actually everybody has the authority to say things um, uh, and so on, which is really an act of duplicity because it ultimately hides the fact that most of those are done, most of those words are given in order to align with existing past power power structures, not to unsettle mm-hmm. them, right? And, and that's been the basis of populist politics forever. I mean, and I come from India, so I know, should know about this. Now, it's been terrible, right? <laughs> it's been really terrible to see what's going on in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, how the removal of expertise and the idea that there is democratization uh, has been bought into in order to foster uh, very particular interests
1: Great. Uh, We have room for just one more question. I believe we still have a few minutes. So I would uh, ask Paddy's second question and he's asking, uh, if your your argument about democratizing categories are ultimately about also liberalizing the process of categorization. In that sense, if that's the case, would this still make any political sense if we liberalize categorization in itself? Would there be any political impetus to, to categorization then and to the categories that come out of it?
0: So, I mean, I guess in some ways it reverberates with the previous question in that uh, it is not the same as liberalization. And I think this, you know, this is why ending the paper with actually what is the politics of the present and where is the demand for justice in how does that get framed into questions of migration categories for me is really crucial because uh, this is not an analytical, um, you know, play. It can be seen and as, as something, aha, I'm talking quite analytically, quite conceptually, I'm not. I'm practically saying that actually, you need to do this better because otherwise people's lives are at stake, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what's so, for me, this kind of analytical work begins with the politics of the present, but also must end, return to the politics of the present, right? Mm-hmm. It must always return to actually producing a more just world a more, uh, and so it so levels of abstraction like categorization, which you know in some ways is a form of abstraction, you know, as a theoretical, um, pr- uh, as a process of bringing together and abstracting from the concrete, as um, you know, people like Stuart Hall have argued. But what you get here is the importance of then returning that that theorization back to the politics of the presence. You must address it. Right, you must. That's why it's important to have that manifest not enough to write the theoretical thing.
1: <laughs> great, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, sharing with us your ideas and sharing that with us uh, this paper. I think it's being a fantastic start to this spring's lecture series, and we can thank you enough. So uh we have shared the paper. If you didn't get a chance to read it, I'm sure given the conversation that we have here, it's kind of piqued your interest and you can go back and read it. And also when the podcast uh, is eventually edited and produced, we'd be happy to share it with everyone in the audience and also kind of gri- generates more conversations too. so uh, with that I would uh, end our lecture here today and extend all our thanks from the mobilities cluster uh, mobility section of the cluster to professor Kavati uh, sorry I'm calling you professor again I think. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell myself pardon me but we are very grateful that you uh, joined us and also shared with us your uh, research
0: all right thank you so much thanks for having me and thanks for the love wonderful questions and thanks Grace for your sharing thank you <laughs>